You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 25, Tensions Simmer. So in last week's episode, we left off with the colonies celebrating the repeal of the Hated Stamp Act. Now, I left today's title rather vague because I'm going to cover a variety of different topics that took place in the year or so after the Stamp Act repeal. They show how the situation remains tense between the colonies and England and how the two sides are seeing their interests as different from one another. Uh, The first one I want to take a look at is the Declaratory Act, which, as you recall, was passed along with the Stamp Act repeal. This put the colonists on notice that Parliament did not accept colonial arguments over its taxing authority. Colonists argued over the possible threat that the Declaratory Act implied. Parliament had taken the language of the Declaratory Act from a 1719 Act that applied to Ireland. In the intervening years, Parliament had not attempted to levy taxes against Ireland. Indeed, it would not do so until 1801, when an Act of Union made Ireland part of Britain and gave the Irish representation in Parliament. Based on the Irish precedent, many colonists decided it meant Parliament would not try to levy another direct tax. But the Declaratory Act would remain a festering sore between the colonies and England, and it was one of only many indications that the colonists were moving farther from the ideological mainstream in England. A good example of this growing divide is a letter sent from London merchants to the colonists in February 1765. This was right about the time the Stamp Act repeal debates were coming to an end and repeal was making its way through Parliament. The London merchants who authored the letter had been fighting for the Stamp Act repeal so that trade would return to normal. They announced the successful repeal but warned colonists that any further attempts to challenge parliamentary authority might force another unpleasant confrontation. They advised responding to the repeal with duty, submission, and gratitude. They sent the public letter to New York merchants, but as was common, newspapers all across the colonies republished it. And if you want to see the original letter or the responses I'm going to be talking about in a moment, I advise you to visit my companion website, amrevpodcast.blogspot.com. So after this letter spread throughout the colonies, Virginian George Mason famously responded to this letter with a public letter of his own. He attacked the tone of the merchant's letter, saying it conveyed the typical English attitude that the colonists were misbehaving children who needed better manners. He scoffed at the idea that colonists should be grateful for having to fight for their basic rights as free men. He went on to point out that Parliament repealed the law not because they wanted to be nice to the colonies, but because it was in their direct financial interest. The law killed profitable trade between England and her colonies. Mason sent the letter to be published in London newspapers, 
and it made clear that the colonists were in no mood for quiet compromise or conciliation. Around this same time, an unexpected event in Virginia only made things worse for colonial economies. A scandal resulted in a cash crunch, which only created further divisions. Now, I already discussed the Wheelwright affair back in episode 21. That was when a wealthy merchant named Elias Wheelwright fled Boston, owing hundreds of thousands of pounds to people all over New England. Now, this one man created a sudden and massive cash crunch in New England in 1765. Now, a year later, a new crisis was causing a similar effect in Virginia. One of the most powerful men in Virginia, John Robinson, who was Speaker of the House of Burgesses, Secretary of the Province, and Colonial Treasurer, died in May 1766. I've neglected to mention him so far, but he was a controlling figure in the colony, often more so than the colonial governors who came and went. Like most powerful men, he had powerful political enemies. Two members of the House of Burgesses were among his most vocal adversaries. Richard Henry Lee had luckily been rejected for stamp-back commissioner of Virginia. This allowed him to become a colonial leader in opposition to the act. Patrick Henry, who along with Lee successfully opposed Robinson's 1764 attempt to create a government finance slush fund from which planners could borrow on favorable terms. Both men distrusted Robinson's control of colonial finances, but did not mount a direct challenge while he lived. On Robinson's death, though, Lee and Henry both demanded an audit of his accounts as colonial treasurer. They suspected that he had commingled government and private funds. The audit proved them right. Robinson had embezzled hundreds of thousands of pounds from the government. Remember all that paper money that Virginia had issued over the previous decade to pay for the French and Indian War? Now remember, that money was repaid in taxes. It was supposed to be taken out of circulation and destroyed. Apparently, Robinson thought it a shame to burn all that cash and decided instead to take it home. He used most of it as a private slush fund to provide personal loans to some of the wealthiest, prominent, and politically connected families in the colony, and he had lent money totaling over £130,000 sterling. These loans had helped wealthy planners get through the difficult years and had offset the harmful effects of the Currency Act of 1764 that I discussed back in episode 20. Now, however, Robinson's estate had to pay that money back to the colony, which meant the planners had to repay their loans to the estate. Once repaid, all that money could finally be burned. This created a major cash shortage in the colony. Many wealthy planners had to demand repayment of loans that they had made to others in order to repay their loans to the Robinson's estate. Others had to sell land or other property in a poor market to raise money, leading to financial ruin. It would take 25 years to settle Robinson's estate and clean up the financial mess that he had created. More importantly, though, the incident tore apart the good old boys club that had been the House of Burgesses. Generally, the rich planner politicians had all tried to work together through disputes and keep scandals out of the public eye. The Robinson affair created a deep, hostile division between the members. For example, Richard Henry Lee, who had opened up this can of worms by calling for the audit in the first place, saw his enemies release his application to become Tax Act Commissioner, thus tarnishing his reputation as a Stamp Act opponent. The affair further destroyed the reputation of elites 
among the middle and lower class Virginians, meaning they would be much less deferential in the coming years. The working class who had been suffering through the poor economy were not happy to find out the rich planters were using an illegal slush fund to avoid the same suffering. Of course, all of the suffering from the currency shortage reminded everyone why they were mad at Parliament for passing the Currency Act two years earlier. Back in London, Parliament was still messing around with the trade laws. A few months after the Stamp Act repeal, Rockingham's ministry passed the Freeport Act of 1766 and a few related bills, making changes to colonial trade laws. Although Parliament passed several bills with different names related to trade that summer, I'm going to refer to all of them under the, just this one name, just to keep things simple. The Freeport Act set up two free ports in the British West Indies, what we today call the Caribbean, where colonial French, Spanish, and other islands could trade goods, particularly molasses. This might have done wonders for ending American sugar smuggling. Farm producers could bring their supplies into the two free ports on Dominica. Then, American merchants could buy what they needed legally. With the duty now at a reasonable rate, there would be no need to smuggle. One big problem, though. Any foreign goods sold at the free ports from foreign colonies had to go from there to Britain. Colonists could not buy sugar and take it directly back to New England. This act was not about improving American trade. It was about making it more advantageous for French sugar islands to trade with England rather than the American colonies. Parliament also reduced the duty of three pence per gallon on molasses to just one penny. But again, since most of the trade had to go through London, the increased shipping costs were far worse than the duties. Therefore, the tax cut did nothing to reduce smuggling. Other clauses further restricted trade or attempted to shut down incentives for smuggling. However, they also made small shipping nearly impossible. Any ship carrying any cargo had to furnish a bond of at least 1,000 pounds sterling, and that was more for larger ships, promising not to land the goods in Europe or Ireland. This was onerous enough for wealthier merchants in large cities and larger ports, but for smaller shippers it was a ridiculous burden. There were no exceptions for ships staying within a colony or even of any minimum size. In theory, if not in practice, the law could apply to traders bringing trade goods down the river in a canoe. The notion that they were supposed to find some customs agent before they could even start their trip and post a 1,000-pound bond seems absurd. Given the difficulties of overland transport, the new rules made legal trade among local small transports virtually impossible. In short, these laws were sold to the colonists as an attempt to relieve their trade problems, but only made things worse. These were not violations of fundamental colonial rights, but they did remind colonists that Britain would always keep them at a disadvantage. Turning now to New York, there was a court case there that contributed a great deal to colonial grumbling during this era. It all started in 1763, when a debt collector named Cunningham tried to collect on a 150-pound debt owed by a man named Forsey. During the course of their discussions, which apparently got rather testy, Cunningham drew his sword and ran through Forsey. Forsey lived, and Cunningham was convicted of assault. And after he recovered, Forsey sued Cunningham for his damages and received a jury award of £1,500 in October 1764. Too many, this award seemed far too high, 
the result of jury bias against debt collectors. Forsey appealed to New York Lieutenant Governor Colden, who was at the time acting governor. Colden demanded the judges appear before him and explain why they did not overrule such an outrageous judgment. The judges met with Colden, but refused to alter their opinions. The debate raged throughout 1765 as both sides appealed to officials in London to resolve the issue. Eventually, the English Attorney General and Solicitor General upheld the verdict based on the defendant's failure to seek a writ of error. This was a rather technical decision, but it ended it nonetheless. And this resolution did not arrive until early 1766. So for more than a year, the colonists saw this ongoing battle as an attempt to subvert jury trials and allow the Crown-appointed governors to have the final say in court cases. It was another example for the colonists of how hard they had to fight just to keep their basic rights. Now moving up to Boston now, I want to talk about another relatively minor incident that is interesting because it is an example of similar incidences happening regularly and why officials got so frustrated in their attempts to enforce new customs laws. In September 1766, customs officials received a tip that Captain Daniel Malcolm, a merchant trader, had untaxed wine in his Boston home. As was common practice, Malcolm had a large storage area in his home for storing commercial goods. Customs Commissioner Benjamin Hollowell, along with two customs agents and a deputy, arrived to search Malcolm's property early one morning. He allowed them to search most of the storage areas, but refused to provide access to a locked cellar, saying he had rented that space to another person and did not have authority or a key to open the door. When they threatened to break down the door, Malcolm, armed with two pistols and a sword, made some threats of his own. After a tense standoff, the authorities left to gather reinforcements. They got the sheriff and also notified the governor about what was happening. They also decided to go to court and apply for a regular search warrant. They already had been doing this under a general warrant, but as I've mentioned before, many considered those to be a violation of their rights. Officials caught up with Malcolm in a public place on King Street and tried to convince him to allow the search. Malcolm told them the only way they were getting in was if they broke in, after which he would sue them. That afternoon, the sheriff and four others went back to Malcolm's house, only to find it locked up tight. As they tried to gain entry, a crowd of onlookers started to gather. The sheriff saw the beginnings of a mob. A tense standoff lasted for hours as the sheriff tried to convince onlookers to join him in a posse. No one would do so unless he named the informer who claimed that there were untaxed goods in the house. Of course, naming the informer probably would have resulted in him getting a new suit made of tar and feathers, so that was not going to happen. Finally, after dark, the sheriff and customs officials decided to leave. Malcolm then produced the wine so that the mob could enjoy disposing of the evidence in the most enjoyable way. The reason this particular case gets attention is that Governor Bernard thought it was James Otis who was behind the event. It seems that Otis was looking for a test case to challenge the validity of general warrants. If the officials had captured the untaxed wine on a general warrant, then Otis would have been able to bring the perfect test case to challenge the validity of general warrants. Captain Malcolm was a prominent member of the militia and a friend of Otis's, so Bernard took multiple depositions the following day to document the incident for London. He was trying to make a case for bringing more soldiers to Massachusetts to enforce the law. 
Otis, then on behalf of the legislature, demanded Bernard make his documents on the incident available for review. The legislature also sent its own version of events to its agent in London in case the issue arose there. So although this incident is well documented, it is only one example of a large number of cases where mobs regularly continued to thwart customs officials in trying to enforce the law. The Quartering Act was also continuing to remain a sore spot for the colonies. Although passed along with the Stamp Act back in 1765, I've not given it much attention up until now because it had not been something the colonists had complained about nearly as much as the Stamp Act. Grenville had wisely rejected General Gage's proposal to allow him to house soldiers in private homes. The Act merely provided that colonies had to provide some reasonable housing for the soldiers and pay for basic needs such as firewood and candles. But there weren't that many soldiers stationed in the colonies, so it just wasn't that much of an issue. The bulk of British forces remained in Canada after the Seven Years' War. There were small garrisons of no more than a few dozen soldiers at some western forts. But beyond that, there were a few companies in Georgia and New York, but none of these seemed to raise much controversy. Even before the 1765 Act, colonies regularly contributed money for housing soldiers. Most colonies wanted troops available in case of an Indian attack or a slave uprising. The minimal amount of funds needed to provide housing was generally considered worth it. During the winter of 1765-1766, though, the mood was much different. Following the Stamp Act riots, General Gage decided to move several battalions of soldiers from Canada to be stationed in New York, Philadelphia, and Charleston, all major port cities. Their purpose was clearly to keep the colonists in line. Gage would have to move the soldiers through New York, and he demanded that the newly arrived governor, Henry Moore, supply his troops with housing and supplies as they traveled through New York, pursuant to the Quartering Act. Moore, of course, had to go to the Assembly for funds, and they were in no mood to cooperate while still fighting with England over the Stamp Act. The Assembly refused any funds, arguing that they already paid for garrisons in Albany and New York City. They would only reimburse expenses after the fact. Gage and Moore tried to force the issue, and sent letters back to London regarding New York's refusal to comply. The governor eventually came up with about 400 pounds of money that had been allocated years earlier to fund the troops. At the same time the New York Assembly was fighting over its requirement to pay for soldiers, New York was also in the middle of a land dispute. Settlers from Connecticut and Massachusetts were crossing into lands long claimed by New York in the Hudson River Valley. Squatters there were setting up farms on land owned by prominent New Yorkers, many of whom sat in the assembly. The squatters formed militias to block any attempts to force them off the land or pay rent. They also threatened to destroy the homes of landlords who attempted to enforce their property claims. General Gage seems to have taken some satisfaction in seeing the New York landowners face these squatters. Many of these wealthy colonists were sons of liberty who had supported the Stamp Act mobs. Now those mobs were attacking them, and they needed Gage's help. Even so, when Governor Moore asked Gage to restore order in the area, he deployed two regiments of regulars to burn the homes of the squatters and arrest any settlers or militia who resisted. The New England squatters gave some resistance, with several regulars shot and at least one killed. However, by the end of the summer of 1766, New York once again controlled the region. 
New Englanders, of course, were outraged by the pillaging of the regulars against their farms, but ended up pulling out of the area. Their account of Gage's actions reached London first, resulting in Gage receiving a reprimand for involving the army in intercolonial land disputes. But at least he had shown New Yorkers the value of an army to keep order and protect property rights. In the midst of all this, the Assembly obliged Gage by authorizing a barracks bill in June 1766. It directed £3,000 sterling for the troops. However, the money came from funds already allocated in earlier years and did not cover all expenses. More debated vetoing the bills, since it really only limited use of money that he already had the discretion to spend as he wished. But in the end, Gage urged him to sign it, figuring that some funds were better than continued fighting. Both Gage and Moore wrote back to London about the New Yorkers' refusal to obey the requirements of the Quartering Act. Gage had particular reason to be outraged. He just used his army to protect New York property rights in an action that got him in trouble with his superiors, and the ungrateful New Yorkers would not even pay the reasonable housing expenses for the soldiers protecting them. Finally, in December 1766, the Assembly needed to allocate additional funds. They simply refused to do so. So the year ended with New York simply refusing to obey the terms of the Quartering Act. Next week, Parliament pokes the colonies in the eye once again with passage of the Townsend Acts. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.